Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and welcome back to another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. I'm really excited to be talking with my new friend, Haley of Sweet Home Montessori today. Haley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. So Haley, why don't you tell us a little about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am first day mama to a sweet little two-year-old. I'm married to another teacher. So my background is in early care and education with a focus on early childhood development. And to sort of get you to where I am now, I'm going to tell you a little story, um, a little deep background. So I began my first year of teaching and I loved it. I was teaching preschool and my health took a really sharp turn. Mm. So I ended up needing a major brain and spine surgery and it didn't take long for us to sort of wrap our heads around the idea that I likely wouldn't be going back in the classroom. Mm. So for the last five years or so, it's been a bit of an uphill battle, but it really made me reflect on exactly what it is I want to do. So I decided, you know, I always wanted to be a Montessori teacher. So I went back, got my Montessori teaching diploma, three to six. I took my Rye Foundations course and I got my Positive Discipline Parenting Educator certification. And I realized, you know, I could work with families all over the world from my home, exactly where I could respect my physical body and Mm. still be able to reach families and kids uh, just in a a little bit more of a creative way. So that's what I do now. I teach workshops and do one-to-one parenting consults. And it's really just the joy of my life. Oh my gosh, Haley, thank you for sharing that story with us. And I didn't know that part of your story, but we have a pretty similar history. I don't know if you knew really? this. No, I didn't know. Yeah. So I was on this career trajectory, had landed my dream job as a professor at UW, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And when I was a couple of months pregnant with my second child, I was in a car accident that was debilitating and took me off that path. And I also discovered that I could respect my physical body, get better, stay well, and help and serve families all over this beautiful world. So I love that we have this aligned kind of Yeah, that's so fun. No wonder I felt like such kindred. I know. It's so (laughs) funny that we both felt that exact same way. Yeah. I'm so glad that our journeys brought us together. 
Me too. I think that there's something beautiful about a process. I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, my injury really made me slow way down. Like it forced me to slow down and move into the present moment more intentionally. And that's a lesson that it taught me that I carried with me into my parenting and it served me very well. I couldn't agree more with that. You know, I always try to look for the good and see, you know, why did this happen? And of course, we will never know the why to things like that. But we have to think that it's done so much good for us to have this perspective that others, you know, they don't get to have. It's so rare to have something so world turning happen. And if you can, you know, slow down like you have, you know, I try my hardest to do and see that it really does bring us closer to our purpose and bring us to sort of understanding ourselves better. I mean, there's such a gift in that. There is. Yes. And so this is exactly what I've been inviting my community to do in these past few days in my 30 days of play challenge. This is a challenge that we do in my community every year. And we've been slowing way down, observing children's play and then observing our own reactions to play, reflecting on how we feel about it. And we're moving into the action part of it. And I really am so glad that you're here to talk with us about this because you create such beautiful content on how to have a thoughtful, intentional environment that supports children's play, but in a way that is not intimidating. (laughs) So I think so much of the time when we see these Pinterest perfect strews or invitations, it's so intimidating. And I love the spirit of kind of like knowing your child and simplifying. So I'd love to hear what you have to say on the kind of the importance of preparing an environment so that play can happen. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you. Also, I'm so glad it's coming across that way. It's interesting. I actually made a really intentional shift away from having everything so perfectly prepared with these perfect invitations to play because I felt that even though they got, you know, a lot of likes and people like crafts and things like that for their children, I felt like it wasn't true to me and sort of the principles of Montessori and Rye. It was more that, you know, it was an easy fix where when it comes to getting to the independent play space, there's so much more that goes into it and so much that we can do to help them to feel more confident in their own play. And I know you've been working, you know, your way up to this. And I love that you've talked about the observations, which in themselves are so meditative to help us slow down when we can carefully observe our children. So pulling that into your environment is exactly what we do in Montessori and Rye, right? So we want to make sure what we're doing is following the child. I'm sure, you know, you've seen that everywhere. Follow the child, follow the child. I know what that means for me, but like, what do we mean when we say that follow the child? Cause that feels a little vague and a little abstract. And I know lots of my folks are like, but tell us what to do. Yes. And that's why I think that's why those posts with those beautiful invitations and strews and projects are so attractive because we're like, oh, there's the answer. This mm-hmm. is what will allow play to happen. And in reality, what we're saying is it's a little bit different than that, right? It's yeah. about following the child, but what does that yeah. mean? <laughs> So I'm sure what the first three weeks of this leading up to our talk has been about, which is following the child closely in observation. So Maria Montessori stated, follow the child, but follow the child as his leader. So it can be confusing because you're like, oh, follow the child, let the child do as exactly as they hope and wish to do. 
but you are the child's leader. So we have to closely observe, provide these opportunities to learn, grow, and develop in a safe and carefully prepared environment. So the environment is created with the child in mind entirely, you know, considering their current development that you learn from, you know, educating yourself, but also just observing your child because all development comes in different ways. And then thinking about their future needs, right? So what's coming next? What are they striving for? So we was, oh my goodness, respect the child and his natural progression, just honoring that spirit and the independence. So I'm making that sound a little bit woo-woo again, but (laughs) so if when you follow the child, you know you're doing it because the child is showing you what you need to do. They're going to show you their interests. They're going to show you, you know, and it's going to be so obvious. I have parents ask me, how do I know what they're interested in? What do they light up at? What are they smiling at? What really grabs their attention? So, and when their attention is grabbed, what do you do? Right? So, so many parents want to jump in and Mm -hmm. say like, oh my goodness, like, what are you doing? But that's what you did that so well. Look at what you built. It's a this, it's a that. We project our labels, we project our ideas and our agendas onto their play. Absolutely. And, you know, and a lot of the time- with good intentions. I'm sorry to interrupt, but with the best of intentions, because we love them and we're so excited for them. And we think everything they do is amazing, right? Yes, because it is. When we want to get to that prepared environment, you know, we are the prepared adult. The parent is the prepared adult. And part of that is respecting their play as their work. Mm -hmm. So the small little steps that we take to get to independent play is to never break their concentration, to wait for those lapses in their concentration. So there's all these little things that we do before, you know, we can ever expect them to play independently when we've been playing for them a lot of the time or it's been parent-led. And we do this from the time they're very little. Like a baby is just engrossed in looking at their hands. We think to ourselves, oh, they're bored here. Let me put this rattle in their hands. <laughs> and again, with no malintent, with all the best of intentions, we want a rich, like engrossing environment for them. Of course we do, but we do. We interrupt them. We break their concentration when we do those things. Or if they are exploring and working with something and we get in there and show them how to do it, we are interrupting the process. And what you just said reminded me of quote of Fred Rogers of, you know, Mr. Rogers neighborhood, who I adore. The quote is when we treat children's play as seriously as it deserves, we are helping them to feel the joy that's to be found in the creative spirit. I think that really speaks to what you were just saying. I could just listen to everything he says just on a reel of my life. And I would be such a better person for it. He's magical. He's magical because he respected children's play and he took the time to watch and observe them and understand them, you know? Yeah. So that magic is available to all of us, right? Oh, absolutely. All of it. It's actually, it's not that funny. It breaks my heart when I hear parents say, you know, I'm just not one of those people that's good with kids. Like it never came easy to me. And, you know, for none of us is this just a gift. It's that we want to learn about them, you know? And it's different when you became a teacher because you love kids. It's different when it's your own kid. You love your own kid. It doesn't matter if you're good with other kids. It just matters that you love your child and you want to learn about them. You want to respect them and you, you care about them. 
them, which I'm sure all parents do. Absolutely. Everybody can have that Mr. Rogers magic. I think so too. And I I think you bring up a really good point. You know, like I was a a nanny and a babysitter my whole life growing up. I was so excited to be a mom. I thought like, oh my God, I'm going to be the best, most playful, most fun mom. I'm going to play with my kids all the time because I enjoyed that so much as a babysitter and as a nanny. And I'm the exact opposite. Like I play with my kids sometimes, but not nearly as much as I'm sure most people think that I do. I mean, I really don't know the last time I played with them. Like if I'm thinking like where they were like, come play with me and do this specific thing. Hardly other than like we craft together, we do art together, we bake together. We kind of do the things that we mutually enjoy and then they play together. (laughs) It it was different when I had only one child, but you know, or when they were younger, my kids are older, they're eight and five and they're older and doing different things now. But I think I want to give everybody permission to not always love all the aspects of play with your child and to know that like, it's not your job always to entertain your kids. That when we do take it on as our job, we kind of undermine that, that natural process too, that the kids are engaged in. No, I completely agree. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on is, you know, how we get to that independent play because Parents will come just right away. So how do I get my kid to play independently? How do I do it? How do I do it? And just as you were saying, you know, you bake together, you craft together, you do all these things together. That's your quality time. So is your child getting enough quality time with you? Are their needs met? Are they safe and secure? And is, you know, their environment prepared for them? Those things have to happen before we can even get to independent play, right? So Mm -hmm. until they know for sure that I have it in me, the confidence that my caregivers, you know, not going to leave, they're going to be there for me, they're going to be observing, they're going to be present when I need them, then I can go play independently. But before that, there's so much they're striving for. So Magda Gerber has, you know, a quote that is always ringing in my ear. And it's better for our children to have 100% of us 50% of the time than 50% of us 100% of the time. So I keep that in mind because when you're with young children, I mean, caregiving moments, if you make that good intentional quality time, that's a lot of your day. You don't Mm -hmm. have to be sitting and entertaining your child all day long. They just need to know that, you know, they're getting all of you, you know, 50% of the time. You don't have to be spreading yourself so thin. It's that's such a hard, impossible thing to, you know, hold yourself to. I think you're saying something that's really important though, is that these caregiving moments are happening regardless. You know, we put socks on, we brush our teeth, we prepare a meal, we prepare a snack, we wipe a face. All of those things are happening. They're going to happen regardless. And we have the opportunity in each and every one of them to build connection into the very fabric of our lives together. And when we do that, when that need is met, that very basic human attachment need is met, then they're free, right? They're free to play. So I'll get to my list that I've made of what that prepared environment looks like, right? So you've got the needs met, they know they're safe, they've got you, you're, you're their human. So now we play, right? And in the prepared environment, so like I said, my background's in Montessori. So there's the prepared environment in Montessori, there's the yes space in Rye. These things are very similar. And the intention is that the child has, you know, the respectful environment that you have observed and followed what it is that they need. 
to sort of intentionally make this space just for them, right? So it's somewhere in the world that is only for them. It is, you know, child-sized furniture. There is art based at the child's eye level, something that we almost never think of, that all of our artwork is at our eye level. Mm -hmm. So bring it down. Let them know that this space is for them. It's for them to be able to play and enjoy themselves, have a mirror in the space so that they can see what their body looks like as they're, you know, working on their play. The open shelves is something that you'll see in pretty much every Montessori environment. And of course, you don't have to spend, you know, two hundred dollars on a wooden shelf you can have a baby you can just put a few things out but open so that it's at their eye level and that enticing to them so you want this to be a space that is just inviting it just feels good and then we can sort of break down if you want to what all those things mean and in more of like a tangible thing. So I'm making this sounds like a little magical fairyland where, <laughs> but there's definitely like real tangible things that go into it. Yes. I want to do that. So the folks who are working through our 30 days of play challenge have spent time observing and reflecting. And now we're in the place where we are putting our observations into actions. And I think you were talking a little bit about what sounded quite a lot like Vygotsky's idea of scaffolding, where you are mm-hmm. noticing where the child is what they can do on their own and what they can do with a little bit of assistance and you're crafting things in that way. What does that look like for a three-year-old child who may be enjoying working with magnetiles but hasn't quite moved on to some of the bigger Lego blocks or something? Like, What does that all look like for you? Yeah, so scaffolding in itself to me, just broken down is giving, you know, like you said, respectfully observing your child and resisting that urge to jump in, but being present when they need you. So you can give just the smallest bit of help if they ask for it and sort of allow them to still feel the pride of finishing themselves. Because sometimes when our children ask for help, rather than gently scaffold their way, we say, okay, I'll do it for you so quickly when Mm -hmm it's so helpful for them to just see, okay, what small amount of help can my parent do for me so that this is still my work that she's respecting and that I can get there myself. I have a good example of this. So the other day, my girls were building with a marble run and they had built it really tall and it kept tipping and crashing and they were starting to get a little frustrated and they asked for my help. And I said, well, can I tell you something that I'm noticing? And they had it built up and it was getting ready to tip. And I said, I'm just noticing like where the top is and where the bottom is and how the bottom is closer to the wall and the top can't get that close because this one is off to the side. I'm just noticing that. What do you think? And then I got myself out of there. They're like, oh yeah, we, it can't stand up straight because this one's in the way. If we just flip it around, then it'll be fine. You know, and they solved the problem entirely on their own and then had a great time. And they had this elaborate game going where like the marbles were going into marble jail. I don't know what was happening. (laughs) I'm just noticing this just a little bit. And then they were done and on their own and they didn't need any help. Whereas my instinct would be to come in and be like, let's go like, here, I'll fix it for you. Like that's my instinct. And I don't even know where it's from, but the best teachers have teeth marks on their tongues. Yeah, that's something that I always keep in mind that like, cause it's my instinct to go in and like solve the problem and do the things, but I really have to bite my tongue a lot and that my kids benefit from it but it's not easy. Absolutely. Maria Montessori said she would count rosary beads to stop herself from jumping in. I will physically sit on my hands 
so that I just don't jump in because it's hard. We don't want to see our children struggle, but it's so important to allow them the struggle and to allow them the joy when they do it themselves. And I love that, you know, the I notice, I'm noticing. It's just such a gentle and beautiful way to say, you've got this. This is what I've noticed and let them take that where they will. Yeah, it's hard. That's not easy. It It isn't. And it starts so early. I remember this, both of my daughters, we had this little giraffe that was just apparently really enticing to my kids because they both rolled over for the first time attempting to get to it. But both of them spent maybe 40 minutes trying to get to it in the process rolled over. And it would have been, it was incredibly tempting, like to just nudge it just a little bit closer and then they would have had it. But I held back and I was videotaping it because I was teaching child development at a university at the time. And so I wanted to be able to share it with my students, you know, but that holding back when they got it, like the satisfaction on each of their faces, like they were only a few months old and they were so satisfied. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh, absolutely. It starts so early and those opportunities start so early. Yeah. It's so much more like our own bodies wanting us to stop it and to fix it. You know, there's nothing that they're saying that's like, help me do this for me. It's us deciding like, yeah, I'll step in there. I've got this for you. When we'd miss those incredible opportunities for them. Yeah. And like that takes a lot of self-regulation on the part of the parent. And it's hard. <laughs> we have to be kind to ourselves because we yes. don't always make it. You know, we don't always stop ourselves in time. Yes. There's an incredible poem and you've probably heard it before. And I don't have it up and I definitely won't punish you guys and try to pull it from my memory entirely. But it's the the poem of the man who cuts open the butterfly's cocoon for him as he sees him struggling. Mm, No, it's so beautiful. I always read it to my parents that I work with because it's so important to uh, come from this frame of mind. So there's a man and he's watching this butterfly struggle to get out of the cocoon and in his haste and his willingness to help, he cuts open the cocoon for the butterfly and the butterfly, you know, weak and swollen is unable to fly. Mm -hmm. And what the man and his, you know, kindness, didn't realize was that the butterfly needed that struggle to get the strength and for his wings to be able to fly without it the butterfly never was able to fly and Mm. he took that capability away from him just because it was hard for him to watch and he wanted to help but the struggle's necessary and we can sometimes right the first time I read it I cried and cried but it's just so beautiful and it's a beautiful reminder for us you know to just put on the fridge on those moments when it's like I have to do this for them but then to remember that we'd be taking away that feeling of capability for them and you know them knowing how strong they are yeah okay so we've been focusing a lot on us and I do think it's a lot on us I just wanted to make sure everybody gets some ideas I mean like there's a few things that like of the actions that are in the challenge like I invite folks if they have a tv in the playroom to cover it with a silk or to take it out if they can you know just little shifts but we'd love some other ideas for shifts and changes in their environment that can allow for deeper more immersive play absolutely so uh, I'll go through a little bit of you know a little bit more of what the prepared environment is so in Maria Montessori gave us these principles of what would make you know the best environment for our children so some of those are freedom beauty contact with nature there's more that goes into that but the why of that is that 
our children need to have this environment where they feel confident in themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So they need an environment where they can actually concentrate. So there's minimal distraction in the environment. Like you said, you can cover the TV with soaks and in the environment, it can almost seem like abnormal when you walk into a Montessori classroom, but the walls are likely white or a cream color. You don't see cluttered posters all over the place. Things are very minimal so that we respect the child's concentration, right? Mm -hmm. So another way that we can respect the child's concentration and really invite them to play in the space is to simplify. So that is huge. If you, you know, you have one child, they only need anywhere from four to eight materials, depending on their age. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you're trying to concentrate at a cluttered desk, you've got five laptops open, you've got the TV going. Can you see my desk right now? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, but it's hard to concentrate. Mm -hmm. And it really poses these challenges that they just don't have to have. And it's something that we can do for them, a gift that we can give to them to help their concentration. My rule for kiddos toys for simplifying is that for most kids, they don't need any more toys than they can clean up in the number of minutes for years they are old. So that a two-year-old doesn't need any more toys than they can pick up themselves in two minutes. Yeah. And that is really helpful in simplifying things. And if you takes them longer than that, then they've got too much. Absolutely. No, I love that rule of thumb. I haven't heard that before. I made it up. There it's you just, go. It's just mine, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And then that's so helpful for cleaning up because you want them to know that they're capable of being able to do that. If it's just too much and it's overwhelming, your child is less likely to want to help because you know, that overwhelm, it's hard. It's hard. It's paralyzing. Yeah. I feel that as a mom all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I do laundry. There's too much. Yeah, too much. I can't do it. None. None for me. And then what that looks like in a kid is no, I'm not doing it. You do it, you know. But really what it means is I'm overwhelmed and I need help. Absolutely. And then the toys that are in the space go into this simplifying. We have, um, you've probably seen, you know, the wooden toys, things like that. So the point of the wooden toys is that they're passive toys. So they make our active thinkers. There are these toys that encourage problem solving. They've usually, you know, we have our open-ended toys like blocks, things like that. But then there's the closed-ended toys that have their place as well that have a beginning, a middle and an end, because that's really a draw for children to be able to know I've completed this Mm -hmm. and it feels good. So that's so inviting to them. But the idea that the passive toys make active thinkers, if you have an active toy, that's something like you push a button and it lights up, right? So your child's doing just the bare minimum and they're getting a lot of feedback. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't exactly encourage independent play because they're just going to be seeking that big feedback, that big, you know, stimulation. A reward. Yeah. The reward centers of their brain are activated. Yeah, absolutely. That's why they love the flashy toys. Yeah. And it it feels almost like parents say like, but they really like them. They're sitting there, they're doing it over and over again. And I'm like, but how do they do, you know, with blocks, things that are really concentration building, things that help with their independent play that we're seeking for them. I think it's so important to remember your like the long-term goals versus the momentary 
very like as human beings in this digital world, we all have those things. Like for me, the momentary like rush of dopamine and serotonin of watching the next episode of The Crown versus I should really go to bed right now and turn Netflix off. You know, we all struggle with those things. And as parents, it's we've got to rein it in. You know, I was reminded of another Magda Gerber quote, active toys make for passive babies and passive toys make for active babies. I love that quote. It's a very much a guiding principle for what I bring in to my home for toys. Absolutely. We are the exact same way. So that's huge. And the question that I get asked a lot is why we rotate toys and how this helps in a prepared environment. So like I said, we only have a few toys set out at a time because it helps them really concentrate. It helps them to really get the most out of the material. Mm -hmm. When it's on their shelf next to only a few other things, they're able to play with it for such a longer amount of time and really get the most benefit out of it and, you know, how it's going to serve their development because they know how it's going to serve their development. They could be playing with the material in the complete opposite way of how you expected, but we need to give them that time to be able to do that, to be able to explore it in their own way. Absolutely. But we can trust kids to do what they need to do. Like yes. any, especially in play, their intuitions are beautiful. And who cares if they're not using a material like we think it's supposed to? Right? <laughs> they're doing something meaningful and important to them that's exactly what they need to be doing with it. Like kids don't do meaningless things. Yeah. They don't. <laughs> Everything they do has a purpose and an intention, whether they're aware of it or not, you know? This is why I love kids play because this beautiful moment in human development where the kids are unencumbered by shoulds and woulds and coulds and just are in the present moment with themselves, you know? Oh, it's so beautiful. Like I said, it's meditative to be able to watch them play Mm -hmm. and to see their minds working. And uh, I mean, I do it all day. I could and I do. It's distracting. It's even though she's, you know, she's two now. We've been working on this for a long time. So she's got her big bulks of independent play. Play. And I just find myself, even outside of my observation time, just wanting, like, it's magnetic. It yeah. is. Yeah. I know not everybody feels that way yeah. about it, their kids. Like, but at the same time, though, like, we can all bring that level of curiosity and wonder to anything we choose. And when we do bring curiosity and wonder to the kind of the mundane and everyday in our lives, in anything, a drop of water on a blade of grass, a spider web blowing on the corner of your room that we immediately go to, oh man, I need to get a dust cloth and get up there and clean it. But if we just stop for just one moment and pause with wonder about the effort that it took, the life that that represents, you know, we can drop into curiosity and wonder in any moment of our days. And why not give our kids the gift of that mindful attention? Not all the time, but sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I can't believe how long this spider has been kicking. There is a spider (laughs) in my daughter's play space. He's teeny tiny, but he worked so hard on this web. And my daughter noticed him. Again, can't believe she noticed him. He's so tiny and he's in like her bottom shelf. And I noticed she was observing. I let her observe. She brought me over to observe with her. And I asked if she wanted to let him outside. And she said, no, stay. So Mm -hmm. he still lives here. He doesn't live 
like escape. He stays in his space, but she is so attracted to it. And it's something that we otherwise would like smush or be like, oh, oh my gosh. And here she is just admiring mm-hmm. this tiny little being and watching its body move. And I'm like, oh, what a joy it would be to, you know, a glimpse in their brain. It's just, we can. Yeah. Oh, it would be my inclination to want to just like unobtrusively. And when she's not in the room, just like put a little magnifying glass, like right there and just see what happens right there. And just the next sort of phase in the principles of the space is order. Like I said, you know, to not have a cluttered space is it's great. It helps our concentration, but our children, you know, birth to age five are really in this sensitive period for order. So children pass through these very, you know, definite periods where these things are so important to them and they're so important to their development. There's a place for every everything and everything in its place. And the importance of that is at this age, they're making sense of the whole world around them. And it's confusing, right? Like there is so much that doesn't make sense. So if we can offer them a space in the home that's prepared for, you know, their play, their work, but that it makes sense that things will be there when they expect, you know, Mm -hmm. they catalog it in their mind and say, yep, that makes sense to me. Okay. Next over on my wall, my art, uh, that makes sense to me. This has order. This has, you know, as Maria Montessori, you know, she was brilliant, but she pulled these things into the, like the whole spectrum of the universe Mm -hmm. where this is our children making sense of the universe in their small play space. Absolutely. Yeah. We say all the time that kids are little scientists kind of (laughs) manipulating their environment in experiments and hundreds of them a day. And think about how many variables there are in those experiments. And we know when we're doing a really good experiment, we're just supposed to manipulate one variable. And so having a consistent orderly environment keeps the number of variables low so they can have more, they can learn more and learn in a deeper, you know, amplified way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it gives them less to worry about. You know, we see like that. So the sensitive period for order, you might see in your child who like loves routines. They love repetitions. They love repetition in books. You can even see it that way. They love, you know, knowing that something is going to go right. And they think it's like a little bit funny when things go wrong. Like say if you were reading a book and it's like repetition after repetition, and then you like change it, you mess it up. They are going to hone in on that like Mm -hmm. crazy. So you see these sensitive periods for order all over, but to bring it into the play space, it just has such deep meaning and it's so helpful for them to be able to play independently, you know, Mm -hmm. when they're not worried about all those variables. Yeah. It frees them. It's freeing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think something else too, that I feel like just came out while you were talking to is that there's this piece of it too, of being honest about like where play happens and not trying to force it. So like Mm -hmm. we just, redid our kitchen and kind of dining room we opened up a couple walls things changed and we were realizing that every day when the girls wanted to color with me or do something we were traipsing to the playroom getting the art materials and bringing them in to this low round table that was our coffee table and I was like why do I keep fighting this like why am I fighting this so I just I got a basket I put some of the like basic art materials in it and put it under the table and now like every day we do art together there and so I think like yes 
just to order, but also to like flexing with your kids, knowing them, knowing like if you are always reading in one corner and having to schlep the books back to the bookshelf, like put a little basket of books right there. That's where you're always reading. Just put it right there. So they know where to go to get them. Absolutely. You know, I know not everybody has a playroom in their homes. Like you and I, like these are big focuses for us professionally. And so like I've given up our living room. Like we moved in and I kind of even halfway chose the house for its outside play space and its inside play space. There was this sunken living room that had a built-in TV. And I was like, oh, that TV is coming out and a play kitchen is going in. It's perfect, (laughs) you know, but I know not everybody has that. And so sometimes I think it can feel overwhelming to see these beautiful kind of curated play spaces online and then you're in a two-bedroom apartment or a flat where the kids play stuff needs to be in their rooms so do you have any tips for folks in those spaces So this is in Finley's life, my daughter, we have moved six times. So we now live in this house that, you know, I've been dreaming of for a long time. We totally renovated it, got it at the whole thing. And like you, I chose it because the living room, I wanted to be the playroom. It's got the big open windows and everything, but that's because I dedicated my life to this. Yes. (laughs) No, I totally understand. That's not always the case. Our apartment that we lived in before this was uh, just about 500 square feet. It was a, Finley had her own room, but my husband and I's room was also the kitchen, which was also the living room. And so we prioritized, you know, in, we had like a little sun porch in that same area and that was where she played. So all we had was, I think it was probably only like three feet. It was a Ikea shelf that I turned over horizontally and that was her play space and it's not so much about you know having the perfect space and an abundance of space these principles can be carried into any home into an rv into a car yes absolutely i think about this when we go on a long car trip which we aren't doing right now but like i get in there the day before we go and i organize the car space in similar ways yeah you know it doesn't have to be like insta worthy it's about functionality and following these principles so and following your child too yes absolutely and having the space so I actually touched on the yes space but making it somewhere in your home even it's just you know one wall or a little nook a corner somewhere where you can say yes the whole time they're there Mm -hmm. that they can hear yes this is for you this is just your space you know somewhere where they're not being told no 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 and redirecting don't touch be gentle they can just be Mm -hmm. To just be right and be peaceful so that they can focus. And, you know, some people have all the space, all the space in the world, but they just don't take the time to make it a yes space, a a place where, you know, their children are actually part of this little community. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's so tempting to say like, oh, well, we'll just make our whole house safe. And it's not really about safety. Like we made our whole house for the most part safe too, but they need a space where they can relax into it. Yes. Where like it's, so safe that they don't ever have to hear no for the most part in there. So they can be free, unencumbered by the restrictions that we might want to put on them. 
them, you know, because they don't have a lot of self-regulation resources. And if they're going to be concentrating hard on like building a magnetile tower or something or a block tower, like that's going to take everything they've got, you know, if they had to worry about, oh, that outlet over there that I want to be, you know, checking out or these sharp corners that my mom is always blocking my head around, you know, like that's an extra layer that takes away from their abilities to concentrate. So people, I think, feel like they don't want to block their kids out of certain spaces in their homes, but it's really a gift to your kid to have a space that is for them, that is made and cultivated and crafted and carefully intentionally put together for them, you know? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of the deepest way that we can show our children respect is to you know, allow them to see and really deeply feel that they are part of this community. I mean, we get to eat at a table that's our size for every meal. We mm. get to get water whenever we are thirsty. We had to sit on a couch that's made for us, you know, use utensils that are made for us. For them to just have even just child-sized furniture, it's something that they no longer have to put that extra energy up to climbing up and getting their things or trying to communicate that they need their water, they need a snack, when it's just another layer on them when they're already trying to regulate themselves all day long because they're doing their best. They're trying their best constantly, actively. So Absolutely. Yeah, just to be able to give them, you know, that grace and that respect to have a space for them that they're not worried. You know, I try to remind myself like when we're in places that it isn't a yes space for her entirely. It's like as if things that are overstimulating to me, like the TV was on, the tea was singing, the, the going <laughs> off and, you know, I'm wearing itchy clothes, all these things that are stopping me from being able to, slow down and think about what's going on right now, what I can concentrate on. Because as adults, if that was to happen, we would probably flip our lid in like two seconds with all of that going on, all the things we have to remember, all the things. So there's just so much just giving them this, you know, prepared environment where they can concentrate and, you know, it's for them is somewhere in your home. It brings out beautiful qualities in your child and it brings Mm. out respect in your relationship. Well, I have sweethomemontessori.com. So there's a little bit more information about my workshops, what those are all about. We dive really deep into the prepared environment in those because I know it, it's big. It's so important. And the workshop itself is mainly on parenting and positive parenting. But so often I find that the prepared environment is for some reason left out of that when Mm. it's so important. And it's really vital in seeing that positive behavior because they need a, a positive space. They do. They need a place to relax. And also, I often talk about the environment as another parent in the home, like that the environment can hold boundaries and hold space. And if we are mindful and intentional, we can really use it to our benefit. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. You know, the Montessori triad of the prepared adult, the prepared environment and the child, just Mm -hmm. you need all three to be able to peacefully go through. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It was beautifully put. Thank you so much, Haley, for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge with us and for really geeking out with play with me. I (laughs) loved that. That was so much fun. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad I could talk to you forever. It's been such a joy. Me too. Yeah. 
Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.